0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we look to the text of Scripture and discover the nature of the God of life. Last week, as we opened the book of Exodus, I described the fullness of the meaning of the word name in Hebrew and how this word has way more meaning to it than we usually ascribe to it. We usually understand that this word simply means a series of sounds that we make with our mouths that allows us to identify and to differentiate one individual or thing from another. And while this is indeed an accurate meaning of the word name, even in Hebrew, there is way more to the word name than this. So much more. As we discussed, even in English, the word name carries with it much more than simply an identifying word. And we see this in several ways. We use phrases such as, he has a good name, they have a bad name, to describe an individual's reputation. He made a name for himself to describe an individual's fame. He has one of the most detested names in history to describe the report or renown or even the character of a person. And the name of the law is used to describe the authority that belongs to a person or an organization. And yet when we turn to the Bible, we usually tend to reduce this concept of name to simply the series of syllables that identify one thing from another. Especially when we recognize that God is not a name, but is rather a title or job description that is ascribed to a divine being. In fact, the word God is rather useless term in most conversations, as it's something that we as humans tend to individualize. If we were to speak to the average American and Mass if they believe in God, we'll get a majority of people who respond in the affirmative. Well, of course we believe in God. It's on our money after all, right? But then if you begin to drill down into the specifics, you'll find that the world has reduced the idea of God to a reflection of themselves for the most part. We, especially here in the West, we tend to define God in as many ways as there are people here in the West. Simply believing in God does not make one a Christian. New Agers believe in God. Muslims believe in God. Pantheists believe in God. Pagans believe in God's. Hindus believe in God's. And then within each of these traditions, there are a multitude of different ideas and understandings of who God is and how he, she, or they operate. And so it's very important for us to realize that if we speak to others about God, we may very well be speaking of two completely different or even opposed ideas of God in our conversation. Their idea and concept of God may be diametrically opposed to our understanding and ideas of God. And so this can make conversation on this matter a bit difficult. Uh, Now, in a setting such as this, the word can be very helpful as it helps to avoid unnecessary controversy over specific pronunciations. And the ideas of God within the Messianic or Torah observant community are much more aligned with each other than they tend to be out in the world at large. But in the same way, the word God is just a job description more than anything else. The other words that we use to identify him, they're all titles. Whether that be Lord, Adonai, Master, Hashem, they all mean simply that. They mean Master. Hashem means simply the name, the one in charge. It's a descriptive word. It is not a name as we want to define the word name. These are each titles for God. And yet, if we understand that a name is more than simply the sounds that describe an individual, we'll find that these descriptive words are, in fact, part of God's name. Because these words do describe His authority, His power, His role, His character, and more. But they're not the end of the story. There is more to God than simply a bunch of titles and job descriptions, as we'll read in today's text last week as we began this exploration of the revelation of the name of god and all of its meaning and glory as represented in exodus we really didn't get to talk much about him because the majority of these first two chapters they're consumed with the origin of the man moses in the history of israel since genesis and it wasn't until the last two verses that we get the first glimpse of the god of israel in the text now this week we will be faced full on with god himself describing himself to Moses, and not for the last time. This fateful meeting at the burning bush that has been the subject of so many attempts to define and describe. Today, we're going to be reading this event in its entirety. A whole chapter and a half of Moses speaking to God through the medium of a bush that burns and yet is not consumed. Now let's not forget that this is the very first time in scripture that we read the words of God spoken directly to any man at any significant length. So let's not miss the significance of this as we read through it. God himself is introducing himself to Moses. He's introducing himself to mankind. And there's a lot to take in here. So let's read this text and let's pay close attention to this conversation as it unfolds. And in these words, Let's hear the heart of God that is contained in them. So let's open up to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3 verse 1 through 4 verse 17. Now Moshe was shepherding the flock of Yitro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of Elohim. And the messenger of Hashem appeared to him in flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked and saw the bush was burning with fire. But the bush was not consumed. And Moshe said, Let me turn aside now and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. And Hashem saw that he turned aside to see, and Elohim called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moshe, Moshe. He said, Here I am. He said, Do not come near here. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is set apart ground. And He said, I am the Elohim of your father. The Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Yitzhak, and the Elohim of Yaakov. And Moshe hid his face, for he was afraid to look at Elohim. And Hashem said, I have indeed seen the oppression of my people who are in Mitzrayim, and I have heard their cry because of their slave drivers, for I know their sorrows. And I have come down to deliver them from the hand of the Mitzrites, and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Chittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites and the Yavuzites. And now see, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Mitzrites oppressed them. And now come, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Mitzrayim. And Moshe said to Elohim, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Mitzrayim? He said, Because I am with you, and this is to you the sign that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Mitzrayim, you are to serve Elohim on this mountain. And Moses said to Elohim, See, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The Elohim of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And Elohim said to Moshe, I am that which I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And Elohim said further to Moshe, Thus you are to say to the children of Israel, Hashem, Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Avraham, the Elohim of Yitzhak, and the Elohim of Yaakov has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my remembrance to all generations. Go, and you shall gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, HaShem, Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Avraham, of Yitshak, and of Yaakov, appeared to me, saying, I have indeed visited you, and seen what is done to you in Mitzrayim. And I say, I am bringing you up out of the affliction of Mitzrayim to the land of the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite and the Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And they shall listen to your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the sovereign of Mitzrayim. And you shall say to him, HaShem, Elohim of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness to slaughter to HaShem, our Elohim. But I know that the Sovereign of Mitzrayim is not going to let you go, not even by a strong hand. And I shall stretch out my hand and strike Mitzrayim with all my wonders, which I shall do in its midst. And after that he shall let you go. And I shall give this people favor in the eyes of the Mitzrites, and it shall be that when you go, you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask from her neighbor and from her stranger in her house objects of silver and objects of gold and garments, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters and shall plunder the Mitzrites. And Moshe answered and said, And if they do not believe me, nor listen to my voice and said, Hashem has not appeared to you, and Hashem said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A rod. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moshe fled from it. And Hashem said to Moshe, Reach out your hand and seize it by the tail. So he reached out his hand and took hold of it, and it became a rod in his hand. So that they believed that Hashem, the Elohim of their fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, and the Elohim of Yaakov, has appeared to you. And Hashem said to him again, now put your hand in your bosom and he put his hand in his bosom, and when he took it out, and see his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, Put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again, and he drew it out of his bosom, and see it was restored like his other flesh. And it shall be if they do not believe you, nor listen to the voice of the first sign, they shall believe the voice of the latter sign. And it shall be if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river, and and pour it on dry land, and the water which you take from the river shall become blood on dry land. And Moshe said to Hashem, O Hashem, I am not a man of words, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And Hashem said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Hashem? And now go, and I shall be with your mouth and teach you what you say. And he said, O oh Hashem, please send by the hand of him whom you would send. And the displeasure of Hashem burned against Moshe, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he speaks well. And see, he is also coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he shall be glad in his heart. And you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I am with your mouth and with his mouth, and I shall teach you what to do. And he shall speak to you for the people, and it shall be that he shall be a mouth for you, and you shall be as an Elohim for him. And take this rod in your hand, with which you shall do the signs. So we're all familiar with the story. We've seen it depicted in many ways in many different mediums. Moses is out with the flocks of Yitro, his father-in-law. Wait a minute. His father-in-law was named Ray. well in the last chapter, right? Yes. Yitro means excellency. One of these names that were given is a moniker of Moses' father-in-law. The other is a title. I believe Yitro, excellency, to be the title. Now that little tidbit may seem a bit of a detour, but as I open with, the titles of an individual are just as much part of their name as their personal identifier. And I believe the text to be highlighting this fact with this quick switch from the personal name, just eight verses earlier, to his title in the first verse of this chapter. Well, Moses has the flock near Horeb, the mountain of God, and as he passes he notices something odd. A bush is on fire, but is not consumed. Now the text tells us that this flame was in fact a messenger of Hashem that burned in the midst of the bush. And at this odd sight, Moses turns aside from his task with the sheep to see this bush. And as he approaches, God calls to Moses from the midst of the bush by name, Moshe, Moshe, to which Moshe replies, Hineni, or Here I am. And as we'll see throughout scripture, this is the proper response that a person should make when God calls to you. Make yourself available to him in his will. And as we'll find out soon enough, Moses isn't all too keen to take up the task that God seeks to give him. Well, God stops Moses where he is, and he tells him to take off his shoes, for the ground that he's standing on is holy. Why take off his shoes? Well, it's out of respect. This is something that we don't understand well in our Western culture, but the feet of a person in the Middle East and in the ancient Near East are seen as the most shameful part of a person, and the shoes doubly so so when a middle eastern reporter throws a shoe at george bush he's shaming him he's attempting to connect and bring shame upon george bush and we'll find this act of removing shoes while on holy ground it's something that carries over into the tabernacle later into the temple service as priests would serve before god barefoot we read of it in other places such as joshua when he meets the angel as they're approaching the city of jericho and so on and so forth we see this all throughout scripture So then God opens up with a phrase that has, in many circles, taken on a life of its own. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, we should not, at this point, impose some sort of mystical meaning upon this introduction. There are some who take this initial I am and later I am, specifically the I am statements made by Yeshua, And they equate them to this later statement of God that's used in this chapter. But they're not the same thing. Because the words used here are simply words of introduction. Anohi. This is simply a first-person masculine pronoun, I. And he then follows this with just who I is in this case. I am the same God that you have been raised with stories of. I am the God of your forefathers. And then God follows up with what we talked about last week. He says, I have seen the oppression of my people. I have heard their cries and I know their sorrows. And if we examine this verse in isolation, we ask, but wait, there's something missing that was spoken of in the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, God remembered the covenant that he had made with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Where is that in this chapter? It's not missing. It's simply implied in that initial introduction the I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It implies that he remembers his covenant with them. So God has introduced himself to Moses, and he has described what has transpired to cause him to appear to Moses, the affliction and the cries of his people. Then he tells Moses of what he plans to do about it. He says, I have come down to deliver them from Egypt, to deliver them from their oppressor, and then to bring them to a good land, to save them towards the hope, That had been given long before. This land that had been promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and later. The land that's inhabited by the six nations that will become this list that we will read on multiple occasions of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan and those who have become so ultimately wicked that they must be destroyed. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Chivites, and the Jebusites. And then he repeats. I have heard their cry. I have seen their oppression. And then we read something that causes indigestion in some. And I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. Now, wait a minute. God just said back in verse 8 that he had come down to deliver Israel from Egypt. But now he's saying that he's sending Moses to go and deliver the people of Israel. Which is it? Is God going to deliver them from Egypt, or is Moses going to deliver them from Egypt? And the answer to this question is a simple yes. God is going to deliver, but the people won't hear from God, and so he needs a messenger. God needs someone to go and to speak his words to Israel so that they might believe and follow. And in many circles, the question then arises, well, if God is all-powerful, why does he need Moses? Why doesn't he just simply swoop down and deliver them? Why muck about with all of these plagues and destruction just to take them out and give them their reward? I mean, a simple rapture would serve just as well as the rest of this mess, wouldn't it? That is, unless the deliverance of this people isn't the only goal of this exercise. You see, if God simply wanted to save his people, then he could swoop in with eagles like Tolkien writes of, and as God declares that he in fact did in Exodus 19.4, that he carried them out on eagles' wings, he could do that. He could then destroy Egypt in a mushroom cloud like Sodom, and mission accomplished. His people rescued, his enemies destroyed. Simple. But as we discussed last week, this book is about way more than the Exodus. And the deliverance is for more than just the blood relatives of Jacob. An entire half of this book is dedicated to laws and instructions for a tent and clothing and such. So the Exodus itself, it's a tool. It's a tool that's used to teach the world about who this God is. His nature, his character, his authority, his power, and more. And in doing so, to call people into his kingdom. And so it is that God desires a tool in the form of a man to act as his messenger to the people. Now, that is his primary means of acting. The creatures that we call angels are also called men throughout scriptures. There's only once when God appears himself before mankind, and he doesn't do so in the form of a man. And that is an event that we're going to read of in just a few months at at Mount Sinai. And so it is that God uses great signs and wonders to accomplish this immediate goal of deliverance. But in the midst of these signs and wonders, there is a series of lessons on the nature of the God of Israel. This immediate goal leading toward the longer-term goal of bringing Israel back to this mountain to serve him, and teaching the lessons of what relationship with the holy God looks like. And this is the sign that God tells Moses that what he is saying is true. You will come back here, and you will serve me. Now, the Exodus itself is simply a means to accomplish this ultimate goal of the book of Exodus. That the people come to worship God on the mountain. To learn about God at a very deep and meaningful relationship level. To dwell with God in their midst. And the signs and the wonders? Oh, they're to demonstrate the name of God in a very real way. These things, they are designed to call people to him. If God had simply raptured his people out of Egypt or whisked them away on the wings of an eagle, then only blood sons of Israel would have been saved from Egypt. No one would join themselves to a defenseless, helpless, and oppressed people. Not without a reason. But with signs and wonders and a mighty hand that demonstrates the ultimate authority of the God of Israel, The result of what will come out will be a great mixed multitude from every tribe and nation and tongue that will exit Egypt alongside the blood descendants of Jacob when the time of salvation comes. Now this is something that we'll dig in much deeper in upcoming weeks, but for now let's be aware of this. The story of the Exodus from one end to the other is designed to teach us not just of the past, but of our individual present and a future that yet awaits mankind. And it is now in verse 13 that we get to the main purpose of this book. To teach us the name of the God of Israel. And that's just what Moses asks. He says, when I come to the people and they ask me your name, what should I tell them? And what is his initial response? Ehyeh, Asher, Ehyeh. I am that I am. Is how it's usually translated. But in reality, it's better translated as, I will be what I will be. He's saying, in essence, you want to know my name? Sit back and watch. I am prepared to demonstrate my name for you. I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and I'm going to be what I'm going to be. My nature is set. And in this midst of what is to come, you will discover my name. And not simply my identifier, but my name as in reputation, my fame, my honor, glory, power, authority, renown, and everything else, this will soon be revealed. But if you must have an identifier for me that sets me apart from the other gods, then yod he vav heh is my identification. This is the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is my identifier and my renown for all generations. You want to know who I am now? Look back on their stories and learn of me. You want to know who I am? Look forward to what I'm about to do in your very midst. All of this combined together, it will demonstrate for you what my name is. And so it is that at this one time, I will enter into discussion from this platform into what the pronunciation of these letters may be. Uh, The fact is that I'm not convinced that anyone knows for sure, and I'm also convinced that the pronunciation is not as important as we tend to want to make it. Now, there are, in scholarly circles, only two real possibilities of how to pronounce the name of God. One is Yahweh, the other is Yahovah. Now, all others are more than likely not correct, and they're not supported by any kind of scholarship. And there are a whole lot that say, well, it cannot be Yahovah because of vowel markings on Adonai. It doesn't match up. It doesn't fit, unfortunately. If you look into the name of God, I recommend that you examine the evidence of this from both sides to discover the truth of the matter. Because both sides of this argument, they make excellent cases for their viewpoints. And there are huge volumes of information to take in from both sides. If you truly believe that how the name is to be pronounced is important, then I implore you to do your own research from both sides of the argument. Now what I have witnessed from most who arrive at a belief that the pronunciation is important is that they settle for the argument that they first encounter and the opposing view is generally shot down out of hand because their favorite teacher shoots down the other side before they ever look into it. And then they never do any actual research for themselves. Don't fall for this. If this topic is so vitally important to you, then search it out for yourself. Listen to both sides of the argument, to all sides of the argument. Frankly, I don't believe this argument to be as important as most make it out to be. There are those who imply that if you don't speak the name correctly, then God will not hear you or respect you when you call on him. In my opinion, this is to treat the name of God as if it were some sort of summoning spell. I'm not going to allow that thought to be voiced without a direct challenge. You cannot summon God by simply speaking His name in a certain way. He will not treat you any less if you get it wrong. Now, there are those who would use the name of God as a bludgeon to destroy their brothers, to get into fights and arguments with each other, and to destroy unity. Again, if this ever crops up in my realm of influence, I'm going to confront it, and I'm going to shut it down." We can have civil discussions on this topic, but the moment it turns into a fight, or disparaging remarks on someone's sanity, their intelligence, or their faith is called into question because of a disagreement on this topic, it'll end. It doesn't need to go that far. We cannot attack our brothers because we have a disagreement on this. There are those who say that we should never even attempt to voice the name of God because it's either too holy to speak or we just don't know it. Again, if this is your personal view, I recognize and I respect your opinion. I don't hold the same opinion. Again, I welcome conversation and discussion, but not at the expense of unity behind the one thing that truly matters. There are too many examples in Scripture of men speaking the name of God aloud and in company. And there's evidence even in the Shema that this name was spoken openly at certain times, even in the first century. The name of God is not so holy that it should never be voiced or uttered. In fact, if we look at the Hebrew, blotting out a name is a curse in the Hebrew mindset. It is holy in that the name should be respected, and that it should never be attached to anything that is not part of his character, his power, authority, reputation, and such. To attach the name of God in ways that are contrary to his nature, character, authority, honor, reputation, etc. is to make his name void, or to take his name in vain. And we'll read this a lot later in Exodus 20, that God will not leave unpunished the one who takes his name in vain. And this is, I believe, what is meant by blasphemy. To attribute to God something that is not of him. That's a subject for another time that we'll get into later. All of this to say that I do have a personal understanding of the pronunciation of the name of God and how it should be spoken. But I'm not going to tell you what it is. If we have a face-to-face conversation, we can discuss it. But if you disagree with my view, fantastic, speak the name as you will, or as you won't, as the case may be. It's on each one of us to choose what we do with his name in the realm of pronunciation. Because we simply don't know. It is incumbent upon us, however, to ensure that we respect his name when we do choose to speak it, and that we don't use it in vain for personal reasons. Now, I will not think any more or less of you if we disagree on this topic, and I ask that each one of us respect your brothers in the same way. It is my understanding and belief in that the pronunciation of the name of God as represented in the yod Hey vav Hey or the Tetragrammaton serves merely as a means of separating the God of Israel from all other things that men might call God. It gives us that unique word in either case that we can attach to those many attributes of God as we build our understanding of God as revealed in Scripture. The name is what allows us to separate the God of creation, the God of Scripture, and the God of Israel from all of the wannabe gods out there. There is no magic in proper pronunciation. That's not the point, and it never should be. Because to treat God's name in that way is, in fact, to make it vain, regardless of how right you get it. And that's all I'm going to say about this subject of the pronunciation of the name of God. It's unimportant, so let's move on. So it is after this revelation that God tells Moses to go to the elders of Israel to repeat what we've already read. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, remembering the covenant, has appeared to me. He has seen your affliction. And he's going to bring you up out of Egypt and bring you into a fertile land that is currently occupied by those six nations that become a byname for the enemies of Israel. Once the elders believe you, and they will, he is told, you are all to go to Pharaoh and deliver this message. The God of the Hebrews has met with us, and we are to take a three-day journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to him. That's all. No, let my people go. No threats of punishment, no curses, no plagues, just a simple message. Then God says, the elders of Israel are going to believe you, but the king of Egypt is not, even if you go to war with him. And so it is that I will reveal myself to him, and I will work miracles and wonders in his midst. Only after he finally understands who he's up against, only after he's been shamed and left in utter humility and desolation, only after the name of God has been revealed to him fully, will he let them go. You see, the pronunciation of the name of God convinces no one of who God is. Simply telling Pharaoh that Hashem desires his people to go doesn't change Pharaoh's heart. It's only a real encounter with this God that changes his heart. It's a demonstration of God's name and action that the nations will finally believe. And that is important to remember for each of us. Revealing that God has a name, revealing what you believe God's name to be, these things convince no one. It's only a real encounter with the God of creation that brings a person into action in accordance with that God. And when you are let go, it says, I will show you grace, and Egypt will hand over their riches to you. Again, I will show you grace. Egypt will give you things when you ask. Which is it? God showing grace or Egypt showing grace? The answer is yes. Finding favor in the eyes of your enemies is a sign of God being on your side. And there it is. That's the plan. God's plan of salvation for Israel. This is the gospel that is to be preached to Israel while they're in bondage. I have seen, I have heard, and I know, and I am sending one to deliver. You will be shown grace. You will come to me in worship, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. Very simple. The gospel right here in Exodus. And so it is that God has revealed his plan to Moses. And so now Moses, as a man... He comes up with all these objections. Moses has plenty of objections. Well, okay, God, that's all fine and good, but what if they don't believe me? What if I go to the elders of Israel and tell them what you've just told me to say and they don't believe me? And so God gives Moses three signs to demonstrate that this message is true. And usually we would look at these signs with a whole lot of confusion, as if these are simply magic tricks to demonstrate that Moses has been granted some measure of power. There's a whole lot more to these signs than simply an abracadabra, ta-da, moment. But if we read on to the end of the chapter, Aaron speaks the word, Moses does the signs before the people of Israel, and they believe. So what is it about these signs? These signs are meant to convey a message to the elders of Israel. But what is the message? It's the exact same message we've read four times now. That message is, I, Hashem, I have seen, I have heard, and I know. And so God asks, what is that in your hand? No, well, it's a rod. A-, a rod is a symbol of authority. And Moses throws it on the ground at God's command, and it becomes a serpent. Cool trick, bro. But then Moses grabs the serpent, and once again, it's a staff. This demonstrates that God has seen the oppression of Egypt. How can that be? What, what does that even mean? Well, ask yourself, how was Israel described in chapter 1? They were described as animals, as swarming creatures that were less than human. And this is how they were treated by Pharaoh. This sign, it reveals to Israel that Pharaoh saw them as a serpent, and that Pharaoh reacted as Moses did in fear and loathing when he saw them. But the sign continues, With my servant, I will lift you up and return you to a place of authority under my kingship. You will no longer be a serpent. You will be a rod. You will be a tribe. You see, the word mate or rod in Hebrew, the same word used for tribe in other places in scripture. Just as the word shema is the only word for both hear or obey, mate is the only word for both rod or tribe. It's not just the same consonants with different vowels. It's the same word. But then God gives Moses a second sign. Again, this sign, it's more than a magic trick, but rather it's a further demonstration that God has seen and heard what has occurred to them in Egypt. Moses puts his hand into a, his bosom. It is thought that this is an idiom for put your hand inside your shirt. So Moses does so, and when he brings it back out, it's covered with leprosy, or zara. Now, we're gonna speak a lot more on this affliction later when we get to the book of Leviticus. But the fact is that what we call leprosy in our English translation is not Hansen's disease or actual leprosy as we think of it today. In fact, when we get into it, we're going to find that leprosy or tzara in scripture can be used to describe several skin conditions. Leprosy in the Bible and leprosy in medical science, as we understand it today, are two different things. So what does this symbolize? This sign reveals the second phase of Pharaoh's plan of persecution. zarah in scripture is equated to death, and so it shows that God saw when Pharaoh killed the flesh of Israel while it was still inside. He attempted to murder the boys before they could be born. But when Moses puts his hand back in his shirt and brings it back out again, it is whole and clean, revealing that God is going to restore the fruit of the womb to Israel. No longer will the flesh die in secret within them. And if they don't believe that, then there's the third sign. Water, taken from the Nile and poured on the ground, and the water turns to blood. This is a sign that God has seen the blood of Israel that's been spilled in the Nile as the sons of Israel have been thrown into that river. The water of the Nile, it conveniently hides the truth from the inhabitants of the land. A child is thrown in and then nothing. It's as if the child never existed, hidden under the rushing waters, passed on beyond view. Easy to deny it. No evidence left behind that anyone can see of this travesty. But God has seen. He sees the blood in the water. In fact, the blood of the innocent cried to him from the water, and this thing has not been hidden from him. God will reveal the blood in the water to all, but first he's going to reveal it to Israel to convince them to build their faith in Him. We talked about each of these things last week, but this week God is demonstrating this truth to His people. He has seen and He knows what they have experienced. He reveals this through signs that embody the truth of this understanding. These are way more than simple magic tricks. They are God's way of revealing His own intimate knowledge of their persecution. And Moses sees these signs, but he still does not want to do what God's asking him to do. And so he comes up with another excuse. But why me? I'm not a man of words. I'm a man of slow speech, slow tongue. On the Hebrew, the word used here is not slow, but rather heavy. It's the base word that we translate as glory, kaved. I have a heavy mouth and a heavy tongue. Now, people have tried to understand for years what this might be. Did he stutter? Did he slur his words? Was he not all that bright? Did he suffer from a phobia of public speaking? We don't know. Frankly, we can't know, and it doesn't matter. Regardless of Moses' own thoughts on his shortcomings, God has chosen him to accomplish this task. Now, up to this point, all through Genesis, God was revealed as the originator of life, the one who gives and takes life, who controls massive forces of nature. But now here, in verse 11, God makes a very significant claim. Who made man's mouth? Who makes them deaf or seeing? Who makes the seeing or the blind? Is it not I, Hashem? Now, up to this point, we have seen God control massive forces and take an interest in only in the lives of a small set of people. But now it is that God claims not just the ability to do all these things, not simply the power and the authority to create life. Here he reveals how he is intimately involved in the minute inner workings of each person. Now, this is a significant claim to be made by any God at this point in history. I mean, the gods were fickle, they were disconnected, they were not interested in the affairs of men, especially something so intimate as the formation of the inner workings of each man. Uh, Today we take this for granted, but for Moses, this would be an earth-shattering revelation. God is intimately involved to the point that he determines who is deaf and who is blind. But even at this revelation of the fine-tuned control from Hashem, moses still does not want to take this task he tries one more time please god choose someone else to send don't make me do this i don't want to go and it's only now as moses continues to question continues to object that god begins to get angry and so it is that god he relents a little he says well you know your brother aaron he speaks well I'm sending him to meet you, and you can teach him what to say. Regardless, I'm with you, and I'm going to teach you what to say. In verse 15, there's an interesting phrase, because the word that's translated as teach is the same word that we get the word Torah from. The word is vittoreti. God is going to Torah Moses what to do. And Aaron will speak for you to the people. He will be your mouthpiece, and you will be as God to him. That's a interesting phrase, but it seems as if it's just simply a description of the relationship that these two will have towards each other and then have any kind of real theological significance. If you're reporting theological significance onto that, oh, stop. It's, it's an idiom. It's a, it's a metaphor. It's a word picture of the role that they'll play towards each other. And what we'll find as we progress through this life of Moses is that Moses is called to act in the role of God for the people of Israel. In Exodus 20, we're going to read of God speaking directly to Israel, and they plead with God, No, please speak to Moses and let him speak to us. Then later in Numbers, it will be revealed that Moses is, in fact, unique. God speaks to him as a man. He does not speak to him like others in dreams and visions. And then in Deuteronomy, we'll read that there will come a prophet after Moses who will be like Moses, one who will be as God to men. That's the prophet that we know to be Yeshua. And finally, God tells Moses to take his rod in his hand, because with it, he will do all these signs. So what is it that we learn from this Parsha? Is there anything really new here, or is this, for the most part, just a rehash of those final two verses of chapter 2? Well, for the most part, it is just that. It's an expansion of those last two verses. I have seen, I have heard, I remember, I know. These phrases, they're repeated over and over throughout this text, and then signs are given that this is, in fact, true, and not simply a platitude. And We're told the personal name of God in this chapter, but that's not really new information for the readers. The name is something that's been present in the text since Genesis chapter 2. We do learn a little more about Moses and his Parsha. Specifically, he doesn't want to get involved. He doesn't want to be put on the spot like this. He doesn't want to be chosen by God to do great things. It's easier to simply remain where he is in exile and forget all that's happening to his brothers in Egypt. It's easier to stay involved in his trade than to leave that behind and follow God in a task that's going to be immensely difficult. Moses has to lead people who don't really want to be led. And if they're going to be led, they don't want to be led by this guy. As he leads them, He has to represent God to them, and that's a difficult task for anyone, and Moses he feels less than qualified to take up this role. Now does God require Moses to go through years of learning, years of gaining knowledge? No, the fact is that the places where Moses has already been all this time were the places of training that God had developed for Moses to learn what he needed for this position. Now that the time has come and the call has come, he says, serve me in this way. Now is the time to act. It's the time to move and to do. No more training. Training is over. Now, no more time to learn or to grow. Any further learning is going to be accomplished on the job. Anything that has been forgotten, it will be addressed immediately. And this reveals that there are times when God chooses a person to do with thing. And there is nothing more for them to learn before they start. This also shows that God will choose people who do not have a desire to serve in a specific capacity. Because I'll tell you right now, I did not want the position of leading the local congregation that I have in the beginning. I was told by others growing up that those who were called to teach, they would want to teach. And those who were called to preach, they would want to preach. And those who were called to lead, they would want to lead. I tell you now, that is a bald-faced lie. The story of Moses demonstrates this. Moses did not want this position, but he was chosen. In the same way, the prophet Jeremiah did not want his position. And God had put him in his place, and in a similar way to how he put Moses in his place. In fact, in Jeremiah, God opens with this in verses 5-8, through Jeremiah 1. Before I formed you in the belly, I knew you, and before you came out of the womb, I did set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations, and said "I, Ah, Master Hashem, see, I do not know how to speak, for I am a youth. And Hashem said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, but go to all to whom I send you, and speak whatever I command you. Do not fear their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, declares Hashem. So while we learn a lot about God in this Parsha, Perhaps one of the best things that we can learn is that when God chooses you, he's chosen you for a reason. He doesn't choose you because of your ability or your capability. Many times he chooses you because of your weakness. He chooses you for the thing that you are the most ill-suited for. God chooses for his purposes, not because you're fully equipped or capable of doing the task. If you were, you wouldn't need God. He equips, He trains, He empowers us to do the things that He has for you. So while everyone gets caught up in the revelation of the personal name of God or in the signs and wonders of this Parsha, let's take a moment and shift our focus to this hidden revelation of God's name that's here, that's found in how God interacts with those He chooses for His purpose. When God chooses, He's in charge. And if you've been chosen, let him lead. Let him be in charge. Don't assume that because you've been chosen that you now have to go through some sort of worldly training regimen before you're ready. He will make you ready for whatever you have to face. And as we'll discover later, if you are chosen and you fail to step out in faith, it can lead to a time of retraining by God. I mean, for all we know, God may have chosen Moses all the way back in chapter 2, chosen him to lead, protect, and to judge Israel. And it was the fear of man that banished him to the wilderness for the next 40 years. Fear of Pharaoh, fear of his brother's accusations over the murder that he committed. And so 40 years of wandering in the wilderness in order to train Moses up to take the position that he was appointed to. How many times have you delayed in doing what you've been called to do because of the fears of the world that have beset you? Perhaps Moses delayed the blessing that was due to Israel by 40 years due to his own personal fear, due to his own lack of faith, due to the challenges that he faced closing in around him. And as he looked around at Pharaoh seeking to kill him and his brothers accusing him of murder, rather than taking up his task and trusting in faith, he ran. Why did Moses do this? because he did not yet know the name of God. He did not yet know the qualities of this God that had called him, and he did not know how to trust God. In this view, how many of his brothers perished while waiting for Moses to go through God's training program? And this this should not lead any one of us to guilt or shame or fear, but rather it should comfort us. Moses, this man who became the greatest leader that Israel ever had besides Yeshua, This man of great faith, he lacked faith in the beginning. And as we'll see in upcoming weeks, he still has issues with strict obedience. And yet God continues to use him. God knew that this was necessary. God knew that Moses lacked faith. God knew what Moses lacked. And God was willing to work with that because Moses was the man who was chosen for the job. And that's something important for us who are in this. When God chooses, and if you're in, if you believe in the God of Israel, you've been chosen for something. And when He chooses, He chooses for a reason. But He also understands that we are human. He is gracious. He works with us. He trains us up in the way that He desires to go. And if we're not ready, He'll train us further. And that training, it will hurt. But in the end, His will will be accomplished and we we will be put on the path of life we'll be shown the way of life and so we must continue to always dare to seek life shalom thank you for tuning in to teresh If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we De'er Shchai, as we seek life. Shalom.